All right. Big ideas. That's what I want to do. And I'm already behind time, so let's talk about big ideas. Um, out of Genesis 1 through 3, this is how I'm ending the year. Because, listen, whether you know it or not, you're living out of some idea that's in your head. And ideas are viral. And in the information age, viral ideas happen suddenly and they sweep across cultures. And if you're not paying attention, every time some weird, crazy thing happens in one place and gets on the news, it happens in other places. It springs up inside of people because people are utterly susceptible to notions and ideas. And, and they are empowered even by horrible stories. But every one of you is living out of some idea. Jedediah, what a name. I like that name. I wanted to name my child Jedediah, and she said no. <laughs> it worked out all right. But, but that's the name that Nathan spoke over Solomon because of the Lord, beloved of Yahweh. Hallelujah, that's a good name. And, and uh, you, that's a... You can defend that name. If anybody messes with you, I can see that. Hallelujah. My wife, never mind. Don't do it. <laughs> big ideas. So, what people, listen, movements happen when a big idea catches fire. Whether you, whether you understand it or know it not, the Jesus people movement was somewhat fueled by the big idea that Jesus is coming tomorrow. The theology that, that, that allowed people to do a timetable stuff with their, with their idea of Jesus's return that idea got loosed in the culture and instead of people being afraid of dying and, and going to hell, they were afraid of missing the rapture. And so a lot of people turned to Christ. Now here's what's interesting. It was a bad idea, but it had a good outcome. <laughs> and for the most part, uh, that idea... That, that, uh, that kind of thinking about the end times, for the most part, it is fading, losing its momentum. And mostly because whether they admit it or not, they put an expiration date on it. Now, most ideas don't really have an expiration date. But what will happen is an idea will get loosed inside of people. It'll take root and it will become the common way that people think. And that's how cultures are formed. And then a culture, it provides a framework, which is, it's the oxygen you breathe or the water you swim in. Fish don't know they're in water. They just live in that environment. Now, what is really interesting that's happening is that... That, that the ideas that are springing up right now are ideas primarily that are seeking to loose people from their Christian moorings. Do you know that? It's uh, literally, it's, it's the spirit of Antichrist. 
I tell people all the time, I'm not worried about an antichrist showing up. I'm worried about the antichrist that's already here. And an antichrist is not always the idea of hating Christ, even though that's underneath it. Antichrist is sometimes just the alternative Christ. It's an alternative salvation narrative. And more and more people start living. You, by the way, these things get born on college campuses. Or listen, they don't get born there. Uh, uh, sometimes they do among the intelligentsia. But they take root among the young and they catch fire on college campuses. And so these notions will come through. Listen, when uh, it wasn't that long ago that the idea of of Jesus, Jesus was on all the campuses and you could get, you could have Bible studies with thousands of people at, at the campuses. And it wasn't just Bible colleges, it was secular universities. But, but now, if you say the name of Jesus, you're not sure it's okay. And I had a conversation the other day where I was talking with somebody and I just mentioned a, 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 what is now a controversial idea, which was in no way anything controversial at all 15 minutes ago. And I was talking to a college student and he looked at me and admitted, I felt anxious when you said that. Um, I predicted a few years ago that with what was happening in cultures, that in our culture, one of the things that would happen would be um, a renewed um, emphasis on separatism. And I don't know how much I'm seeing it, but, but separatism is the spirit that foments parents to homeschool their children. It's parents who are saying, we don't want our children to be raised with the ideas of the secular culture that are up to date according to the most popular magazines. We want our children to be raised in the values that are deeply rooted in our conscience and in our faith. And I've been kind of introduced to um, one of those subcultures that's in our community that's been quite successful. And now I've done a bunch of weddings for kids that grew up in that group. And I'm telling you, the, uh, the parents, I, I've, I said to the parents at the last wedding I did, you're, 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 you're bearing some fruit. You're being successful at what you're up to. But listen, what they were up to was simply building an alternative culture in the midst of a culture. They're just building a subculture. Now, a lot of you are probably, are probably wondering, am I going to make a diatribe about public schools or, or, or homeschool or private school? Get over yourself and you deal with that problem yourself. You're all, you know, you're grown up and you get to raise your children according to your conscience. I'm talking to you about uh, an issue that's really important. Because... 
I'm more and more persuaded that if there's going to be a culture that is informed by our faith, it's going to be probably a subculture in a very short order. Because what we're seeing right now is is deconstruction. Deconstruction means the, 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 the tearing down of the order that is. Now, it's not always bad to tear down orders. Christianity deconstructed the Roman culture. It very much did. Not totally, but very much did. And always there are, there are cultures that, that, that need, to be, need to be deconstructed. When I talked about a missionary Charlotte Diggs Moon, when Lottie Moon went to China, one of the things that she did and one of the things that missionaries in her generation did was... Um, undergird the idea among the Chinese that binding the feet of the women in their culture was not a good thing. Of you don't even know what that is, but you look that up and that was a common thing. Even at the turn of the last century, it was very common for uh, girls to have their feet bound, which would keep them from growing because of the value that was placed on small feet. And missionaries helped come against that idea. And sometimes, even in our Christian cultures, ideas get embedded that need to be uprooted. All right? So, I'm just gonna give you some big ideas that are right out of scripture. What I wanna do is I wanna, I wanna give you um, just a survey of some of the big ideas that come out of the, the, the narrative of Genesis 1 through 3. And these are big ideas that have been normative building blocks for culture, but they're under fire. And these are things from which you don't want to turn the page. And you might have to create a subculture to bring your children up according to these things. Are you all ready? I'm not going to tell you how many there are. I'll just tell you it's a biblical number. Could be 144,000 <laughs> of the elect. All right, number one, the uncreated God. And how do we know there's an uncreated God? The uncreated God and how we know him. How we know this uncreated God. In the beginning, God. The book of Genesis does not begin with a philosophical, uh, psychological defense of uh, the assertion. It begins with an assertion. So, let me tell you something. When you make an assertion, it's fair for people to say, how do you know? That's the epistemological question. How do you know? I have no problem telling people that my epistemology is revelation. No, I'm not talking about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a revelation. It's the, but revelation means if there is a God as the Bible describes God, you cannot know that God unless that God chooses to be known. That God must reveal God to you. 
And that's where we are in the Bible. So I don't have any hesitation to tell people, you can't figure this out with your um, empiricism. There'll be some things empirically that will hint at it, but this is rooted in the idea that one way of knowing is revelational. It's not easy. And listen, there's, there's experiences that you have that so far the scientists have not been able to unpack. They can't unpack, for instance, love. And especially an exclusive love for someone. You can describe it. You can't unpack it. It's a mystery that happens between persons. And yes, it's a mystery. So we're in the realm of of mystery. It's something that has to be revealed. And so the author, Moses of the scriptures, begins with, in the beginning, God. This is... Uh, this is a foundational truth and it was hammered, 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 hammered that if you want to know God, you have to know God by God revealing God's self to you. And I don't even hesitate, I don't, I don't hesitate at all. Somebody says, can, can you prove God? I would actually say, I can't prove you. There are people who believe that that you're actually just a character in a giant computer game. And by those notions, I can't prove it false. So there's a kind of knowledge. We work with a kind of knowledge that is rooted in unveiling. Got it? That's number one. It's number one big idea. I live in the world in the realm of revelation. And that's why I often refer to, and the scriptures often refer to, apostles and prophets. Even though the apostles are the later ones coming to the scene. When apostles and prophets are mentioned, apostles are mentioned first because apostles are the ones carrying the highest revelation. But prophets carried the first revelation. All right? Okay, so uncreated God. Number two, creatio ex nihilo. (laughs) Creation out of nothing. Now, here is where overreach has cost us in the contemporary world. There are many Christian communities, this is especially true of Britain, where when you start talking about creation out of nothing, they don't make the mistake of hyper-literalizing the creation accounts. It's hyper-literalizing the creation accounts that has weakened our hand in the public discourse. Listen to me and don't miss this. To overstate your claim is to weaken it every time. Wish our politicians could figure that out. (laughs) Right? I can't talk without being political these days. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
This is the idea of something that was not, that now is. It's created out of nothing. And yes, um, I'm very much in love with the fact that, that it's a, an act of speaking. I don't think, I, listen, I think the, um, the faith camp has overreached on how they've spoken of speaking things, but they have reached into something that is real, and that is that words create worlds. They do. That's why you go to universities. And that's why ideas take words, take root, and become cultures. We have it happening everywhere now. Like, listen, I heard that word given to that young lady. You're finding out who you are. Right? And my mind immediately went to the obsession with identity that's in the culture. Now, I'm going to run. I'm out of time already. I'm going to run out of time. And I'm only on 150 out of 144,000. Listen, identity as we define it is who are you in terms of the one who created you? All right? And, or I like to say, of who I am in Christ, who is, after all, the New Testament's revelation as creator. But we have whole cultures being built out of identity that really has to do with self-determination and a a quasi-mix of self-discovery that has to do with um, how you're feeling at the moment. But I don't have time for that. But the idea that God created out of nothing is the big idea upon which Western civilization is built. A God who created the author, the one who released and got this thing going. Number three, and I don't hesitate with this, the goodness of creation. There are many, many, many philosophies and theologies that believe in the evil that matter is evil. And there's actually a lot of weird Christian theologies that seem to think it. But the Bible begins with the goodness of creation and God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good. This is not God's observation, this is God's declaration. And God separated the light light from the darkness. And here we begin with a whole series of binary claims in the, in the first book of the Bible. Now, um, the goodness of creation. Uh, it's interesting because I was talking with a, a philosopher, a friend of mine, and uh, we were talking about this. And I was talking about life after death. And he said, do you mean bodily resurrection? Because he's a philosopher. See, he had to go after that. And I went, oh, absolutely. Because the Hebrew idea of bodily resurrection is rooted in the idea that what God created is good. A good God who creates good. Have you got it? A good God who creates good. What he creates is good. 
And so the goodness of creation is a undergirding of a revelation of in the beginning God. One of the first things we know about God, we know creator and we know good. And we get to unpacking this thing. Every one of these could have their own sermon and this is a survey. Number four, blessing for increase. Because I'm obsessed with telling you this lately that whatever you bless increases. That's why every time we pass a law, we get more of what we pass the law for. Every time we remove a law because we're, we don't want to anymore manage a problem, we get more of what we were trying to prohibit because we're blessing now what we were trying to prohibit. And I can give you reams of examples in culture right now. So, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. So good again and God blessed them. This is interesting because this is the first mention of blessing for increase in the Bible. Saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters and the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. All right. By the way, this is going to inform us for, for some, some next big ideas. Blessing for increase. Reason God blesses us is for our increase. Whatever we bless increases. Hey, guess what? This is an ecological word. This is literally what's gonna, it's gonna lead us into, uh, if you have good creation theology, you, it, it is a tremendous foundation for great care of the ecology, great care of the environment. Christians, uh, biblical Christians are, envir are, are environmental sensitive. I won't say uh, environmentalists because that implies a, wor a worship and a religion. I like to be, a lot of times I like to be careful with my words. Sometimes I'm not, but I try to be. God bless them saying, be fruitful and multiply. You can see that I am gonna get through this. Number five, big, big idea. Imago Dei, the image of God. Say image of God. Image of God. This is a hugely big idea. This is the idea that says, you're not that. That's blessed, but this is different. This is the idea that, that, that places uh, human life above all other forms of life. And God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. So look, we had the blessing of the fish and the birds and now we have Dominion implied in the image of God is having dominion over the rest of the created order, over the livestock, over the um, and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, and you get this wonderful verse. So God created man in His own image, in the image of God created He Him, male and female He created them. And again, so. 
is the building block of your culture. This is an absolute cornerstone of culture. Now, the only way that you can mistreat others, other image bearers, is when you tell yourself in some way they are less. And so historically, there have been these discussions over whether or not the image of God was on groups of people. This has been said over whole races of people. This has been said, this is a, this is a constant uh, dialogue and debate. The more that someone wants to take advantage of a group, the more likely they are to remove this protection from them in their speech and in their words. Because when you speak this, these words over anyone who is an image bearer, now they're sacred, their life is sacred, and the way you treat them is altogether different. And you can see the implications for this for law, medicine, science, culture, um, our interactions, our economy, over and over. You can see the applications of this. This is, this is a, a bipartisan claim. And people from every, every partisanship get a piece of this. We don't all seem to get it all at once. All right, so we went from the blessing of God for increase to the oversight because one of the things implied in the image of God is oversight of his creation. It's not even implied, it's commanded. And God blessed them, got it? 27, verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and over everything that moves on the earth. So here is, here is a stewardship of creation. You are, you are on this earth. Listen, if you're a good camper, what's the rule of camping? Leave no trace. We're supposed to make this place better than we found it. Again, I will say that Christians as stewards of the earth... This should fuel us. This should inform our politics. This should inform our culture. This should inform our value system. This should inform the things we are willing to fight for and the things we're willing to fight over. Genesis 2.15 amplifies the idea. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Again, the idea of his stewardship, it goes on here in, in Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. That is your stewardship. This is, by the way, where I tell people that the first function of fatherhood is to tell someone who they are. The function of dominion is to tell someone who they are. The function of man's dominion was naming the creatures. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Say fit for him. That means designed for him, suitable for him. He looked among all the creatures and said, there's not a suitable partner here. 
all right? And that's, that's, that's woven into this. So what you see is you see these big ideas start to overlap and start to build on each other. I, this, is, well, this is the way I like to word this. Work and worship as a dance. Because listen to me, work is good. There's nothing about labor in the Bible that is said it is bad. You can be, you can be mistreated as a worker, but work itself is good and you are designed for work. I noticed a few years ago something, I noticed when I was in my uh, uh, 50s, I think it was, 40s and 50s, something I had never noticed before in my 30s and 20s. I noticed uh, more and more, and, and I pick on men because I'm passionate about um, who I am as a man and, and what manhood means. I noticed more and more men being taken out of their ability to work. And there's nothing that is more uh, debilitating to, especially, especially a man, than to, than to not have labor that ennobles him. I'll probably get in trouble um, about, you know, I'm sure I'll get in trouble about feminism here, but I'll, let me just say, you live in the, there's, you live in the greatest culture in the world for women. I can give you a whole list of statistics uh, that will prove that, that uh, it's not that big a bargain over women to be a man. We could start with 10 to one jail population, men to women. We could, we could go to um, how old you live. We could go, to, anyway, lots of things. Um, especially you could look at what's happening in education. Um, women are getting the degrees and women are getting the advanced degrees and a higher number than men. So it's a great culture for women. And I'm not trying to, I'm not involved in the battle between men and women. I'm not involved in the debate of it. It's good to be both. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. It really ought to fascinate you that God rested. There's a rest of weariness and there's a rest of finished. <laughs> there's a rest of weariness and there's a rest of completion or finished. And so the best way to describe this is with art. Um, you ask the art, how do you know the painting's finished? Because it's not an objective answer. Because every artist knows you can add one more stroke. But the artist says, I'm finished. And then they put the, they, they put the brush down. Now they rest. And they rest in what they've done satisfied with it all right now listen to me there's a there's a there's a dance in scripture between work and worship and so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation now catch hold of this the reason our culture is built on a seven day cycle is the scriptures 
as the scriptures impacting culture. <laughs> the reason that the seventh day is a day off is because of the scriptures. Um, you, you should be happy that you live in a Judeo-Christian culture. You get a couple of days. <laughs> you, you get a weekend, a lot of you. All right, but now listen, um, what's happened? I don't, I don't have time to go into this, but we have, we have mostly defiled the Sabbath day by turning it into a day of religious torture rather than a day of relational opportunity. Because that's what God did. And I've said it many times. God created man on the sixth day. And then man's, uh, man, male and females, the first day in God's created world was Sabbath for God. Because guess what? When God finished his creation, his masterpiece, his work of art, he was finished. And he invited us whom he put as having dominion over his work of art. He said, Come aside with me. It was a divine invitation for the empirical human to interact with the God who's not easily uh, made available to our senses. Although I would argue that when uh, when the first human was created, that that God was accessible in an empirical way to them. All right. No time to go on. Marriage and the one flesh union. And so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed its place from the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman and brought her to the man. The whole idea is I'm making one suitable, fashioned, perfectly for you. And the man said, ah, oh, this is, this at last is the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. If you don't love the picture of the, of the human man scouring creation and looking for, catch this, himself and not finding you just hadn't waked up yet. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Um, there's a lot we could do about the Hebrew in this. Again, I'm doing a survey. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother. And this is a lot of fun, because how many of you know this is Moses giving us a little extra here because they didn't have a father and mother. <laughs> and hold fast to his wife. I love the word, the old King James word cleave. It's one of my favorite words because it means to split and to hold together depending how you use it. If you cleave wood, it's altogether different than cleaving to your wife. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Marriage is the one flesh union. Um... I will never join the politically correct crowd on this subject. I'm, I'm, I'm riveted 
to revelational truth. I can show people kindness, dignity. I can be, I can be, I can be in every way accommodating to other people who don't hold this, but I cannot bless other than what this describes. Um, look, look, look I, there's probably not hardly any of us in here that don't have people in our own family um, at this point uh, who are living a different way. Um, I don't want to be hateful. I'm not hateful. Um, but I'm not going to run from r- revealed truth and I'm not going to run from something when I'm actually for the purpose of such things preaching a sermon like this because I'm saying to you that future generations will have to build subcultures to live according to these things. In all likelihood, things could reverse, but usually it takes 100 years or more. Now that I'm 65, I can easily dial back into the late 50s and early 60s and know how things were and how they are. And, and things have changed very rapidly, very rapidly. Um, but there's like a thousand points of contact on this in which I can say that, that this definition of one flesh union is, is unique and definitive for those who live according to the Judeo-Christian revelation. One of the thing, measures that I've taken, and if you've been here very long, is about three years ago, I stopped doing uh, legal wedding ceremonies. So do you do illegal ones? No. <laughs> I don't do those either. But what I have done is I've separated the civil from the sacred. And so now when couples come to me and want to get married, I say, you'll have to go to the justice of the peace and get a legal marriage first. And then we'll have a Christian ceremony to solemnize your wedding. You say, why do you do that? And the answer is really simple. I won't sign those documents. I won't sign them. And I won't say I'm marrying you by the authority of the state. I won't do it. And yes, I'm telling you this because I've made a protest. Because I won't join a culture that is Antichrist, I won't be the agent of that culture's um, legal expressions in ways that I can avoid it. I love you. And uh, um, I'm, I'm I'm in a vast minority on this. But so far, when I've explained it to couples, they've understood it and, and they've done it. Now, Listen, I won't do a religious ceremony for someone who hasn't had a civil ceremony. I won't do that because I won't jeopardize a generation of children that would come from that. It is the state's moral responsibility to adjudicate disputes over custody and support. The church is not allowed to do that. But I won't act as their agent otherwise. And I ran out of time. I have a couple more. Shall I go real quick or shall I end? All right. All right. Number nine. 
the revelation of evil. Ah, the book of Genesis reveals God and reveals good. Believe it or not, evil comes as a revelation as well. And I say this because everyone comes to me and asks me for a theodicy. Again, I don't have time. I'm out of time. The biblical theodicy is to tell you where evil came from and how it is remedied. It's not to explain it to you. Do you get this? So people ask me the why questions. Most of the time, the answers are unsatisfactory. But Christian theology is a salvation narrative that deals with evil both personally and corporately. And if you don't like our answer, then you don't want our salvation. Um, And so I'm out of time. And then... Last and best, stand together. The first three chapters gives the revelation of redemption. That is to a, this is the dealing with the problem of evil by incarnation. Say incarnation. What is that? That's the Christmas story. God's way of dealing with evil was the birth of a child. God's way of dealing with evil writ large is the birth of a child. God's way of dealing with evil that dogs your life is the birth of a child. God's remedy is incarnation. And it's interesting that it's in the original story. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you will go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And there's a wonderful play on words there because the devil doesn't have children. He inspires children to their allegiance But the woman bears children and God says it's through the bearing of children in your womb that I'm going to bring the one who will, he says he will bruise your head as in the word is crush and you will bruise his heel. And that's the four preaching, that's the Genesis, that's the first preaching of the cross or the first preaching of salvation by suffering. Last thing. Every time somebody says to me, I can't believe in God because of the suffering in the world, then I say, you haven't even begun to understand the claims of the God of the Bible. Because there's no claim whatsoever in the Christian gospel that there won't be suffering or that you won't suffer. Quite the opposite is true. Quite the opposite is true. What the Bible claims is redemption of all sufferers by a God who also suffers and redeems us. And this is the gospel, amen.